Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Teddy Kupfer, an associate editor of City Journal. I'm filling in this week for Brian Anderson. Joining me on the show today is Nick Burns. Nick is a contributing writer to The New Statesman and has written articles for many different publications, including American Affairs and Foreign Affairs, thereby covering the sum total of human affairs. Nick is also the author of Referendum Rebukes, a feature on California politics that appears in this summer's print edition of our quarterly magazine and ran on our website last week. Nick, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be on. So to start off, I'm going to read a quote from the late James Q. Wilson, social scientist, that appeared in a 1967 story for Commentary Magazine, thanks to Avery James, my colleague, for tracking this down. Wilson writes, quote, explaining California, especially Southern California, has always been a favorite pastime for New Yorkers and Bostonians who have changed planes in Los Angeles, made a two-day trip to the Rand Corporation, or just speculated on what kind of state could be responsible for Hollywood, close quote. Now, I'm not a Californian. In fact, I went to LA for the first time just this past March. But you very much are a Californian, which means I'm going to rely on you to be our guide to long-term political trends in the Golden State. So let's dive into your piece. You start by noting a number of ballot initiatives that last November yielded results which would, at first glance, appear to herald a rightward state, a rightward shift in the state. Sorry, California voters rejected attempts to allow 17-year-olds to vote in primaries. They rejected attempts to raise commercial property taxes and to scrap the current cash bail system. They reversed a recent state law that had targeted gig economy companies such as Uber and Lyft, and they handed a resounding defeat to a bid to reinstate affirmative action in state hiring. One might look at all this and say, wow, California is throwing it back to the 1990s, a time when the state Republican Party was a real force that channeled voter dissatisfaction with liberal overreach into sweeping initiatives and got its politicians elected to high office. But you don't think so. You write in the story that the initiative process has, quote, become a largely symbolic vehicle for expressing discontent with Democratic Party policies, a constitutional release valve for the off-gassing of accumulated pressure. What do you mean by this? How have times changed in California, and why don't these ballot initiative results signal a bigger shift to the right? I guess the way I see it is, um, uh, you know, imagine what things would be like sort of without the uh, ballot measure. There'd be uh, there'd be no recourse for discontent with the Democratic Party except uh, electing candidates, um, you know, from uh, the Republican Party or independent candidates um, who, uh, you know, weren't weren't affiliated with the California Democratic Party. But with the current system, which was uh, put in place by progressives and further left uh, movements in the early 20th century, there's uh, this this other option, this tempting other option uh, that seems to promise a way to kind of short circuit uh, the two party system. The Republican Party is quite unpopular in California, although there are a lot of independent voters. So there's always this tempting idea to try to do kind of end run around the state Democratic Party uh, and its less popular or more controversial policies by passing ballot measures that go uh, that that go against them. And we saw that, uh, as you mentioned, in the most recent round of ballot measures, 
there were maybe half a dozen that passed uh, in and went in directions that sort of opposed the direction taken by the Democratic majority and the legislature and the uh, policy of the current Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom. But if you look to the history of ballot measures that have, uh, you know, gone in a direction that the state Democratic Party, um, you know, hoped they wouldn't, most of the issues end up going the way of uh, the Democrats sooner or later anyway, um, which can sort of happen in a couple different ways. Uh, either the measure in question can kind of be rerun once, um, you know, once the sort of political territory seems more favorable to the other side. That, that was the case with uh, the measure on bilingual education. Uh, passed, which uh, passed in the 90s, banning bilingual education, then was rerun a couple years ago uh, and went the other direction. Or the courts will sometimes step in to, um, uh, you know, strike down a measure and it's judged unconstitutional. And uh, the most, the most kind of, I guess, uh, bald-faced example of this kind of maneuver was uh, having to do with the double referendum on capital punishment uh, in 2016. What happened then was uh, Californians voted, you know, by a not a sort of enormous majority, but certainly a uh, definitive one. The margin, I, I believe, was the same as that of the Brexit referendum. Uh, 52 to 48, more or less, Californians voted to uh, preserve and expedite the death penalty in the state. Uh, the, the current state of play had been that the death penalty was legal, but uh, not practiced. So there's this sort of long and uh, constantly increasing sort of death row list Um which uh, which has become newly relevant uh, be in recent months because uh, part of the massive fraud of the state unemployment benefits scheme, it was discovered that uh, fraudulent claims had been made using the names of many of the uh, inmates on California's death row. But uh, in the in the referendum, uh, which gave Californians the choice, scrap the death penalty or uh, do it for real. Uh, Californians voted to to do it for real. And when the current governor, Gavin Newsom, was elected, he simply reversed that with the uh, executive action. Uh, so I think all of these examples suggest um, that the ballot measure isn't really the tool that it may at first seem to avoid um, having to do the tougher work of uh, political organizing through more or less inevitably the party system. Um, and uh, it really isn't the obstacle to the policy of the, uh, you know, of the party in power that it, that it may seem to be. I think uh, this is of course also mentioned in the article, uh, Pete Wilson um, discovered, I think that it's also, it can be, it can be quite, 
kind of exhausting for uh, sort of conservative donors in the state, which are fairly uh, somewhat limited force. Uh, increasingly, the uh, largest sort of accumulations of political capital in the state are, are Democratic. Um you know, associated with uh, with the entertainment industry and with the tech industry, which tends to be liberal. Uh, so these ballot measure proposals, you know, can can sort of win the interest of conservative donors, and then they uh, exhaust their funds, uh, sort of pumping money into these, and have little uh, sort of patience and. Uh, a sort of spare cash, I suppose, at least that they're willing to donate to uh, actual candidates who would have a chance of having a kind of more lasting impact, I think, on on state politics. Uh, with all of that, I think uh, the prospects for for change are are really not so, uh, uh, you know, frankly, they are not so uh, extensive. And I and the sort of brief round of uh, kind of congratulations on the center right after the results of the recent set of ballot measures came out, I think was uh, uh, almost sort of touching in its naivety. Interesting. So let's talk about another potential source of naivety and another mechanism uh, to, you know, ostensibly that would rein in left-wing excess in the state recall elections. Uh, there have been pushes to recall uh, the district attorney of San Francisco, Chisa Boot. There have been a push to recall the DA of LA. Um, and the, but by far the most uh, high profile recall push is that to recall Governor Gavin Newsom, who will indeed face an election on September 14th. The Budin and Gaskin uh, pushes may not be as successful. As far as Newsom is concerned, polls actually show that the challenge is appearing to be tougher than people had expected. Uh, talk show host Larry Elder recently entered the race and has gained some real momentum. Uh, reports indicate that the Democratic Party is concerned that their voters are not you know, fully aware of what's going on. And polls indicate uh, that you know, likely voters in the race are about evenly split on whether or not they would vote to retain Newsom in office. So I'm not going to ask you to prognosticate on the result, um, but you know if I might press you a little bit, sure, grant that the ballot initiative process may not be uh, the mechanism to effectuate long-term rightward change in California politics. In fact, it actually, in a way, could be seen to help the left uh, by you know reining them in and allowing voters to continue voting Democratic in good conscience. But what about this recall race? Um, you suggest even a Newsom defeat in the web version of the article, you discuss the recall race, and you suggest that even a Newsom defeat is unlikely to undo Democrats' structural advantages in the state. So talk a little bit about why you think the recall of Newsom uh, is also not as big of a deal as some are making it seem. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an interesting, I should note before we get in, uh, to the recall specifically, that the Democratic advantage in the state is not a new phenomenon. Democratic registrations in California have outstripped Republican ones since the 1940s. So well before uh, the parties took on their contemporary political connotations. Uh, of course, Republicans continued to win high office, the governorship specifically, 
well into uh, the 60s and 70s, of course, uh, Reagan's governorship interested the nation and and uh, created an image of California as sort of reactionary capital. The uh, James Q. Wilson article you mentioned goes into this in detail and explains uh, this kind of sociological basis in what uh, what the historian Mike Davis calls um, uh, yahoos with gold water bumper stickers, namely the denizens of the L.A. suburbs. But um, despite despite that fact, you know, despite uh, Republicans winning the governor's office, um, you know, uh, including after the most recent recall election of Democratic Governor Gray Davis in 2003, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, another actor, of course, uh, held the governor's office for two terms. But despite that fact, uh, the legislature has been almost monolithically democratic for a long time. Uh, one exception to that was um, one of the houses did have a tiny Republican majority under Pete Wilson. But besides that, uh, it's been you know, pretty firmly in Democratic hands for a long time. And the majorities have only grown over time over the last couple of decades. Uh, so those, those advantages are very much sort of longstanding. Uh, as far as the recall goes, uh, yes, I the recall elections are, and of course, this is only the second gubernatorial one in California history. Um, they're always very interesting phenomena. You get the whole sort of cast of characters. There are very few, you know, relatively few barriers to running. Uh, the Davis recall election featured all sorts of characters, sumo wrestlers, pornographic actresses, you name it. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger stood out as a uh, sort of well-known and, um, you know, uh, made a sort of convincing kind of argument for why he would sort of do a decent job. And uh, it seemed uh, fairly clear going into that election that he would come out on top, as in fact he did. This election is uh, less clear. I think the forces militating against Newsom are somewhat less strong than the ones that had entangled Davis. Although, as you mentioned, the polls indicate that that uh, Newsom is actually in decent amount of trouble here among likely voters. His margin of advantage is almost within the margin of error. So it could be close. Uh, we'll see what happens. The the field in terms of candidates to replace him is a little more crowded. Elder, uh, as you mentioned, Larry Elder, this uh, conservative libertarian talk show host, has um, sort of emerged as uh, something of a front runner. And it's interesting. I think Elder has been doing his best, as I think did Schwarzenegger, to kind of carry on a tradition of... Um, of uh, what sort of Republican candidates uh, have done historically in California, which is to try to run as more or less nonpartisan candidates. Um, the winning strategy historically has been to sort of uh, de-emphasize the connections to the National Republican Party and de-emphasize partisan politics generally and just emphasize competence, common sense, um, and of course, uh, you know, increasingly, 
you know, criticizing, you know, uh, perceived sort of left-wing excesses uh, in, in the Democratic Party, um, which there's sort of much, there's much fodder for all of that uh, currently, especially with a number of scandals that have hit uh, current governor, uh, the most famous one, of course, being his uh, dinner at the uh, uh, Tony French Laundry restaurant with uh, healthcare lobbyists uh, in contravention of his uh, coronavirus protocols. And so it's it's um it seems like uh, he does have he does have some chance. Of course, we'll we'll see how that goes. But it, even if Newsom is ousted and uh, Elder replaces him. Uh, and, and it's worth noting again here, kind of a procedural uh, element of the recall, which is that first part of the ballot is a sort of up or down vote on Newsom. If he doesn't get 50% uh, on this initial round of uh, voters wanting him to stay in office, then he's out and someone will replace him. Uh, that then goes to the sort of second part of the ballot. And this is all done on the same ballot. Uh, people are then asked after they vote yes or no on whether the governor should stay in office, they they get to vote on who they'd like to replace him if he's out. And uh, the winner of, of that second portion, you know, is, is just a simpler, simple plurality. And uh, since there'll be dozens of candidates on the ballot, the, the overall proportion could be quite small, could be as little as, say, 20 or 30 percent. It's very hard to know in advance. Uh, but even if, say, Newsom were to be ousted and Elder or someone else were to replace him, there's only a, a year to go before the next set of gubernatorial elections. The Newsom's term was due to end in a year. And um, that's that's just, you know, not so much time to sort of establish reputation for competence for anybody. Um, of course, the Democratic uh, majorities in the in both houses of the state legislature will will be unchanged. None of those legislators are, uh, you know, up for reelection during the this recall process. And, you know, uh, what did two terms of, of Schwarzenegger do to um, change the balance of power in the state? Oh, probably not so much in, in um, you know, looking at it from, from, this, from this remove. Uh, you know, without, um, you know, without some kind of uh, threat to, to the parties, uh, the Democratic Party's control of the legislature, I think, the sort of horizons are rather narrow. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean, um, you know, uh, a potential replacement for Newsom might not, you know, uh, prove to be a success. But I think the factors sort of uh, militating against it are, you know, are rather strong. And the conditions in general for this, as I mentioned, the sort of traditional GOP strategy in California that is de-emphasizing the connection to the national party. That's just a sort of, it's a tougher sell in the current climate. Um, uh, you know, we, we may be sort of past the peak of kind of uh, 
party polarization um, during the Trump era, I suppose we'll see. But uh, I think in general, uh, the past the past four years has been has been especially difficult for 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 people who are looking for this kind of uh, middle of the road sort of moderate Republican strategy. You know, only a few guys sort of clinging onto this in New England or Maryland, things like that. Right. So so we should talk about the California Republican Party and what its strategy is, because I think lurking in the background of this entire conversation is the GOP's collapse in California as a relevant political force. You know, they were not the, really the ones who organized this recall petition. Um, as you sort of suggest, they uh, they just, they, they aren't so relevant anymore, let's put it that way. But, you know, the, the Republican Party's collapse, the historiography here is contested. The reasons why it happened uh, are not so apparent. The conventional wisdom points to 1994 as the turning point. That's when then-Governor Pete Wilson, Republican, facing a tough re-election challenge, backed Proposition 187, uh, the infamous Save Our State initiative, uh, which enacted draconian restrictions on illegal immigrants. The initiative won in a landslide, but was gutted by the courts. And Wilson won re-election, but in the process made his party kryptonite to Latinos and liberals. That spelled its demise in an era when politics was polarizing nationally. The state was growing decreasingly white or so the story goes. As you write in the story, however, this conventional wisdom has some problems. The state did become majority minority at some point in the 1990s, but research indicates that 1994, and therefore Proposition 187, was not actually a turning point for the state's Hispanic voters. So what are the real reasons for the decline of the California GOP? You know, this is uh, you know, the party of Reagan. Uh, Reagan, of course, was governor of California uh, California has seen prominent Republicans before be successful, but no longer. Why is the why are the reasons behind the California Republican Party's decline? Uh, you know what really drive drove it? Why is that relevant to contemporary California politics? Yeah, I think um, it's as you mentioned, the role of Prop One Eighty Seven is sometimes exaggerated. In you know, it's 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 sometimes made out as uh, you know, this uh, hu- cruel sort of hubristic um, uh, sort of gesture, which came at exactly the wrong time that that's galvanized this groundswell of uh, Latino activism and, and aligned a whole sort of uh, uh, co- a generation that was coming of age with uh, with the Democratic Party. That, um, as as you mentioned, the, there's research that shows that um, the sort of voting habits of uh, Hispanic Californians did not change so dramatically in 1994. Uh, but I think in general, perhaps that's a bit of a technicality. I mean, it's it's certainly true that um, uh, that um, Hispanic Californians are were throughout the 90s. Um, and into the 2000s, you know, a, a demographic that was growing in California, and they were moving to the left uh, over, you know, over a period of several decades. So uh, the sort of you know failure of the state Republican Party to appeal to this demographic, you know, it does it does seem like a, a fairly obvious uh, sort of ingredient in 
in the party's diminished relevance. And I guess it's also worth noting that the the sort of strides in um, uh, the the strides that that uh, that Donald Trump made surprisingly with Hispanic voters in Texas and Florida in the twenty twenty election were not uh, nearly as as uh, as palpable in in California. And why might that be? You know, one can cite uh, anti-communism in the Cuban population in Florida, perhaps greater social conservatism among Texas Hispanic voters. Uh, I think that's something that's worth looking into. Certainly the future of the California sort of Republican Party runs runs through Hispanic Californians and, um, uh, you know, with with no support among this very, very large um, uh, and sort of crucial element of C- Californian society today. Uh, I don't think the party has too much of a future. But I would I would say that um, that class is uh, just as important, perhaps even more important uh, than uh, ethnic differences in this regard. Uh it's, I think it's fair to say that um, the past several decades in California have seen increasing pressures on the state's middle class. Uh, I know that a number of City Journal contributors, including Fred Siegel, I think Joel Kotkin has written about this as well, have sort of uh, you know seen the Democratic Party, especially in California, as a kind of top-bottom coalition, uh, you know, uh, bringing in sort of wealthy sort of elites in the tech and entertainment industries and um, people who work in these industries and live on the coasts with, um, you know, with with people who are, um, you know, uh, uh, disproportionately poor and um, also minority groups in the state. And as cost of living has increased in California, as uh, housing prices rise, with a uh, lack of supply of new housing and uh, a number of other sort of cost of life, uh, sort of uh, as as cost of as cost of living has also increased in the Golden State. Uh, of course, it's a very high tax state. Um, you know, it's it's been the state's middle class that is that has been squeezed, and and um, uh, of course, I think direct out migration can be. Uh, sort of over exaggerated as um, uh, as as a factor here, but but that's certainly a part of it. Sort of middle classes fleeing to other parts of the Sun Belt, to Arizona or Texas or the Mountain West. Um, uh, but you know the numbers show that that's that's also been happening. Um, it's becoming harder to be the kind of you know, lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class homeowner that was the backbone of that uh, sort of Reagan revolution that that Wilson writes about in uh, in in his article that we've been talking about. I think it's worth it's worth noting that Wilson sort of explains differences between the kind of more sort of left-wing culture of San Francisco and the Bay Area um, and the more conservative culture of Los Angeles and its suburbs by referring to 
homeownership rates. He notes that in 1940, the height of the depression, more than 50% of people in Los Angeles lived in single family homes that they owned. In San Francisco, that number was less than a third. It's also worth noting that in the 30s, San Francisco was a union town while LA was dominated by the open shop. Uh, unions were, uh, you know, did not have a foothold at all and were, were very much sort of frowned upon by, um, by city authorities, the LA Times and the uh, major families who were influential in the city's politics. So if you compare those uh, homeownership numbers, uh, more than 50% in LA, uh, less than a third in San Francisco to today, uh, I've just looked at the census numbers, and they're al- they're now almost the same. Uh, 37.6% in San Francisco, 36.8% in Los Angeles. So there's been a real change there. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think the lack of that sort of um, uh, middle class sort of homeowning base is, uh, you know, really a, a sort of major factor in, in this decline. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, it'll, it, it, it would be, you know, a, a tough sell to try to revive the fortunes of a recognizable um, Republican Party in California without some major changes in, um, you know, in, in housing policy. I'm, uh, I'm personally a little, uh, I guess, a little more skeptical of, of what exactly can be achieved with um, uh, you know, by building, by building lots of, of new housing, um, uh, the, the obstacles to this policy are considerable. And, um, I think everyone needs to do some, some deep, some more deep thinking on, on what, uh, what the, the shape of a more dense California would look like to make California more dense, which is, seems necessary to make it affordable, uh, to make it friendly to uh, a middle class again, you know, it would change. It would change the very kind of nature of uh, of sort of Californian civilization, which had always been imagined. And Wilson mentions this in the piece too, as uh, an alternative to the kind of crowded um, conditions of life in the Northeast. Uh, Californians really thought of themselves as, uh, and continue, I think, to think of themselves as. Um, you know, a people apart, a people who live in a place with more space. Uh, and density, you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, high-rise buildings on the order of New York City, but, um, you know, it necessarily involves uh, a little less space for everybody. That's that's sort of the idea. And um, that may be the only way forward. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think um, no one is too thrilled about the future of California as, a, as a, you know, composed of these citadels of the wealthy and uh, with a growing, a growing and increasingly desperate underclass. Uh, politics will only become more radical in that in that California. But a California that, that becomes, you know, significantly more dense in order to prevent that will be a different California too. Uh, and, um, and I suppose, um, there'll be, there'll be pros and cons that come out of that as well. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm glad you bring up the, uh, Wilson article and this notion of regionalism in California, uh, because the, the convergence of these homeowner, homeownership rates does seem, uh, to be an interesting explanation for the decline of that political regionalism. But, um, you know, we should move on. Uh, I have my last question here. 
uh, and you sort of gesture in this direction as we think, as we move from the political history of California uh, through the political present of California, think about the political future. This is a state that has a reputation for being something of a bellwether. And so it has been treated by uh, both sides of the aisle, really. Progressives look at California and almost salivate at the notion of sustained political dominance delivered by a more diverse electorate. Uh, think of the policy universe that opens up. Uh, imagine the possibilities uh, when you have this kind of um, this kind of position. And conservatives, on the other hand, feel pessimistic or even despondent. Uh, you know, they understand the country will, as a whole, eventually have California's demographics, and they mourn what they take to be their loss of influence in such an enormous, wealthy, and culturally powerful place. And so this may explain why the vanguards of both the progressive left and the, uh, if you will, realignment right, you know, the ultra-woke on one hand and the true-believing Trumpists on the other, call California home. Uh, they think they've seen the future and they're reacting to it. So there was an article uh, in a conservative website that I read recently that made reference to a an emerging, quote, dissident California right. Uh, people who have seen, you know, what they take to be the fruits of left-wing governance and are pushing back. And of course, um, many of the forces that were early to align themselves with Donald Trump in his early political rise were Californians. So I guess my, my final question to you, Nick, before we sign off is, do you think that uh, the left and the right here are correct, that our country is headed in the direction of California? Are, are we all destined to be like more like Californians? Or are they overlooking important idiosyncrasies that the rest of the country might not possess that the Golden State happens to have? Yes, I, I certainly think um, I certainly think it's not, at least politically speaking, it's not the only possible future course, conservatives are increasingly excited about uh, Florida as an alternative example of what a large and diverse state can look like. Or Texas as well as um, civilizational in uh, a similar way to California or perhaps to Florida and, and continues to, to represent a kind of set of values that's more amenable to kind of um, uh, to well, I guess a conservative state of mind, but also uh, the the continued relevance of the Republican Party in these places. I do think that the future will look like California um, in one way or another, and I think that has to do with the way that California and its civilization sort of in a more abstract way uh, kind of um, demonstrate a kind of tendency in, in modernity that's uh, I think was, was um, summed up well by uh, and uh, perhaps this will be the first time that the Frankfurt school is mentioned on a city journal podcast, but uh I do think that, uh, you know, uh, Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer in their dialectic of enlightenment identified something quite distinctive. Well, something that on the one hand is distinctive about California and about Los Angeles, 
but is also in some way indicative of the future of the United States and indeed of, of, uh, of the world, which is this strange mixture of, uh, of reason and, and, um, and irrationality, this tendency to uh, delve into a, the boom or to delve into uh, promising innovation and to apply all the sort of power of human reason to, to this, this pursuit of improvement or, um, uh, or the sort of, I guess, establishment of greater certainty about some topic, but in this heedless, um, very kind of um, uh, badly thought out way that can produce a sort of range of results from the deep, from the uh, tremendously impressive to the catastrophic. I think, uh, you know, the susceptibility of California to, to wildfires and other natural disasters is, uh, you know, one example of this. I, I felt this very profoundly driving through the port of Los Angeles uh, recently, just a couple days ago. This is the biggest container port on the West Coast, and it was built from nothing, from mudflats. There's no natural harbor in Los Angeles. Uh, in fact, the natural harbors in California are San Francisco and San Diego, but uh, these were, you know, these these uh, haven't been as successful as this this port that was crafted purely from the human imagination. So I think California testifies in this way to the power of the human will, but also to the sort of weakness and folly, I guess, of, of human efforts in, uh, you know, in, in, um, uh, in relation to the sort of natural order. And it's something that I think the, the whole country will, will have to deal with in, in one way or another. Well, on that note, uh, thank you very much, Nick, for coming on the show. Uh, don't forget, listeners, to check out Nick's work on the City Journal website, city-journal.org. We will link to his author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. You can find Nick on Twitter, at Nick Burns. Uh, as always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And Nick, thank you very much again for joining us, my friend. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.